Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. Before we jump in, I wanted to alert you that this episode contains content that may be triggering to some. We have a very open discussion around a number of sensitive topics, including drug, alcohol abuse, violence, eating disorders, self-harm, suicide, and sexual violence. These topics are discussed in the hopes that it can help those who may be struggling in similar ways, but I understand that not everyone may be able to safely listen. The episode will begin as usual in about five seconds. No matter what you're in now, or no matter what you have gone through in your past, in that moment where you feel like there is no way out, there is nothing that can get better, like you are too far gone, things can and will get better. And I can say that wholeheartedly because I'm living here in that. (laughs) I feel alive and free and I love life and I love living life. And I'm so thankful that I'm still here. Hello, podcast world. Welcome to episode 40 of Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. By all accounts, Lindsay Clemens shouldn't be with us anymore, but I'm grateful and appreciative that she is and that she was so willing to share so much of her story in the hopes that it could help others who might be in need. I was transfixed listening to Lindsay walk through her story and could feel the pain and trauma she had experienced via multiple suicide attempts, stays in psych hospitals, jail, drug, alcohol abuse, violence, assault, and sexual abuse. At her lowest moment, she'd felt she'd turned her back on everything her parents had taught her, made every mistake under the sun, and there was no way to come back from this. That no man would ever love her, and there was no way out. In her second rehab attempt, forced to detox from psych meds, drugs, alcohol, and cigarettes, she felt God started working on her heart. After the two rehabs, she was lucky enough to be a part of an incredible Christian discipleship school for two years. Lindsay had to look at the pain, work on forgiving herself and others to finally begin moving forward. She met her husband there and feels it was all part of God's beautiful plan for her life. Lindsay is now happily married with two beautiful children, is an accomplished ultra runner, and feels most connected to God while running on trails in nature. Her dream is to one day run the Western States 100, an iconic ultra that takes place in many of the areas where she could have died. Lindsay's also been a key spouse, which is a commander-appointed role that serves as a resource to support the Air Force families over the last several years and will continue at their new duty station in Georgia. She's been trained in suicide prevention and has been able to intervene and help some through emergency situations and hopes to go speak in colleges or high school in the future. I'm grateful for Lindsay sharing her powerful story to help others. So let's dive on in and take a listen. Good afternoon, Lindsay Clemens. Welcome to Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. How are you doing today? Doing well, doing well. Where are you at? Tell our listeners where you're at. I'm in Georgia, 
the Augusta, Georgia area. We're fairly new to this area. Um, but yeah, we're in Georgia. Augusta, home of the of the famous Augusta Masters golf tournament. I I didn't realize you were there. I knew it was I know um we um are in the Coros Explorers Ambassador Group together. And I know uh many members of our team have got some amazing people from around the world in our group. Everybody has a habit of sharing their fun uh pictures from their adventures running on the trails or the roads. And man, we get some uh, just incredible photography. But I knew you were East Coast somewhere. I didn't realize it was Georgia. For some reason, I might have thought North Carolina or South Carolina. So Georgia, there we go. Yeah, a lot of the trails um, that I'll tag in pictures come up. Um, South Carolina? Yeah, South Carolina, because we're like just half hour from the border. Got so it. it's probably a little confusing. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, Augusta. So if you want a place to crash for the tournament next year. Oh my gosh. That I'll I'll take you <laughs> up. I'll take you up on that because for years I've meant to come down. Um getting tickets to be able to see the practice rounds or whatever is sometimes harder than getting to actually see the event. So I've wanted to come for years and the years I was invited where someone had tickets, I couldn't go. It just never actually worked out. But boy, I would I would love to get down there. Um, I feel like I I know every hole of the golf course from just watching it so many years on TV and it's such a beautiful place. Um so there must be nice trails around there. I'm sure there are. Beautiful. Yeah. I had no idea how good East Coasters had it. No idea. I feel like they kept it a secret from West Coasters. And once I got here, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, what in the world? I had no idea how good they were going to be. Hidden gems and a, and a pleasant surprise. So tell, tell the Run Chats audience like where you grew up, uh, what part of the country, um, growing up in your family situation, what that was like. And then, you know, what was your introduction to sports, you know, when you were a kid? So I grew up just outside Redmond, Washington. Um, so just outside the Seattle area. Um, I was, I lived there until I was 17 years old. So pretty much my entire childhood. And, um, I was one of four kids. I was the second one in line, and my youngest sister, she wasn't born until I was 12, so she came into the picture a little bit later in life, and I got to be more like a mom to her uh, than a sibling most of her life, but yeah, so one of four, um, I was I was homeschooled pretty much my entire life. Um, I was homeschooled until high school age. Uh, my mom homeschooled most of me and my siblings, all of us kind of different amounts of time. Um, some like my brother, you know, he started school, like he went to elementary for a couple years and then came home and it was just kind of all over, um, with my siblings. But I was other than like little co-ops and things that we were a part of, like exclusively homeschooled for most of my childhood. Um, my mom was a great teacher. Um, but we really butted heads growing up. I, uh, I don't know. I think maybe our personalities were just too similar or just having that parent teacher, like you're always there with them interaction. Um, we just really butted heads. So I was in trouble a lot, a lot <laughs> growing up. Um, and my family was a Christian family and they were very, like we're pretty strict 
um, about things. So like we weren't allowed to do a lot of things that other kids were allowed to do. Um, I didn't necessarily enjoy being homeschooled. I mean, it had its perks. Like my mom constantly took us on awesome adventures and she was really into taking us like traveling around and we would stop and read about like a monument or the history of what happened in a certain area or like we were always members at the Seattle Science Center and we went there regularly and we'd get to see shows and just a lot of like hands-on experience and um, homeschoolers definitely have an advantage of learning very quickly Um, and so we were a little bit more advanced in our schooling because you get a lot of one-on-one attention and my mom is a phenomenal teacher um, but I didn't, I did not necessarily enjoy it. I think I was a little bit more social than my siblings and I really wanted to be, feel like I was normal and be around other kids and play with them at recess and not just have to pit play with my siblings and like, that's it. Um, so I, I did not really like it and I kind of resented my parents for homeschooling me and all that. Um, what were your other questions? <laughs> well, well, we can, we can stop there for a sec. Cause if you think about it, it's, it's very, uh, appropriate for today. Um, with COVID the past, I don't know how many months are we now? We're 15, 16 months, I guess, living in it. Um, you know, pretty much many, many parents have forced, been forced into homeschool teaching roles, um, many who don't want to do it. You know, your mom wanted to do it. Maybe your mom wanted to do it. Your dad wanted to do it or didn't want to do it. But, you know, these, this is different in that pretty much the dynamic at home has was thrust upon, you know, parents of today um, and f- maybe forced one or even both parents to um, not even work, you know, maybe just to be able to, you know, care for their kids. So it is uh, a super interesting dynamic and very relevant to today. Um, I have a couple I have a couple of good friends who do homeschool their kids as well. And I think, you know, it's it's just interesting. It can be amazing, as you said. If you feel super comfortable in that environment as a kid, you're probably going to flourish and, you know, learn way faster, as you talked about, because you're getting way more attention. Um, but me, I'm, I'm in your camp, you know, just from the social aspect. I mean, I'm a middle child, classic middle child. Love my brothers. We're all super close today. But man, I just want to run around like a madman, wild Indian and, you know, be out in the schoolyard and no one could ever catch me. <laughs> you know, um, you know, just, just be out there, you know, out in the loose and, you know, playing every single sports activity and every kind of game. And, and also when I, where I grew up, cause I'm so much older, um, we just went to the park all day. We didn't come back. My brother was a year and a half older than me and he was basically considered my chaperone, which is think about it. I mean, it's crazy. He was a year and a half older than me. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't like five or 10 years apart or 12 years apart. Like you're talking about your sibling. He was, he was basically my age, you know, it'd be like me being in charge of my younger brother, which I kind of was as well. So yeah, it's interesting. Um, but you know, you went through it and obviously you came through it and did your, how did your siblings handle it? Were they, uh, for it? Did they like it, enjoy it? Or were they like more, more like you in terms of, uh, what their feelings were about it? Now they seem to really like it. I was kind of like the only one that really struggled with it. 
And that like, I remember really butting heads with my mom, like day in and day out, like just constantly battling it out over stuff. So, I mean, granted, they did get to go to school, like public school um, and or some private kind of schools earlier. They weren't homeschooled as long as me. So maybe that's part of it, maybe because they didn't have to wait so long um, to start going to school, but they really appreciated it. And I think there is value in both sides. I mean, it definitely has its advantages. Like we were, we were very advanced and we were learning things in school that other kids were not. Um, But yeah, it just, it definitely depends on personalities and the social needs of each individual can be very different. Sure. Absolutely. So how did you get introduced into playing sports? If you were, were you just like playing like local, like club teams in town, as opposed to like grade school teams or high school teams? Is that your kind of introduction to sports? Yep. Um, the earliest age, uh, my parents could put me in soccer. I started soccer in Washington. Soccer is a very big deal. Like pretty much everyone there plays soccer and everyone in my family played soccer. (laughs) And my dad coached me from like five till, gosh, I don't know, until I guess until we probably until we moved from Washington to California. So most of our like of me growing up, well, I guess until I got maybe to the like ODP or the select, not ODP, but to like select team level. Then I started having other coaches. So, and it was always the same team. Um, I played with the same girls and like it just, you know, grew as we got older, but that same team stuck together and we were very good. And we made it like once we got to playoff age to like state and um, we just always would win and dominate all, all the league. And yeah, it was super fun. I absolutely loved soccer and I loved that everyone in my family did it. And it was just, it was a big deal in our family and in the area. And I really enjoyed it. That's super cool. So you got to be part of, um, you grew together with those other teammates. You kind of came up through the ranks together and you flourished, you know, the team did well, you're getting to compete at like state level and things like that. And as you said, soccer is super competitive in that area. So you got your first exposure, you know, to a team sport too, um, which is, which is great. What, uh, what position did you play in soccer? I played honestly all over, but forward, center, mid, wing, I could run a lot (laughs) and fast. And so I would often get put in midfield, um, just so I was running up and down the field all the time. And I liked to score and take corner kicks and just offense center. Yeah, I was kind of like probably annoying to my team, but I think it's partly because my dad was the coach, but I was definitely kind of like one of the coaches on the field. Like I was the one, you know, leading and directing and like, it just, it comes out of me naturally. That's just my personality. Um, And so I was definitely like, a coach on the field. So kind of always in the center of it and directing everyone like you need to go over here and blah, blah, blah. But sure. It got a little annoying at times, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting dynamic. Cause I coached my son, um, from T-ball up to uh, travel baseball and, um, you know, right up to his high school years. And, um, his mom was, a 
terrific runner. I used to coach his mom. Um, she was an amazing runner and she would always like take it out like 510, 515 pace the first mile of a 5K or a 10K. And I would always catch her around the third mile and go by her. And she was like winning women's races or, you know, coming second or third. But I'd be like, why are you going out that hard in the first mile? Like you're, you're still doing amazing at the end, but you got to like figure out some pacing. And she just look at me like, what are you talking about? I don't understand. I just like to go as hard as I can. All right. I said, let's just work on stuff. So that's how we started dating. You know, it was so funny. We're like dating and running (laughs) and, you know, just like hanging out together. And, you know, I would just give her advice just on pacing, you know, nothing, nothing is really, you know, super smart, just simple stuff. And man, did she, just kept getting better and better. And then, you know, I knew a lot about how to train for a marathon because I just read every single thing that was out there in the world on, you know, how to become really strong aerobically and, you know, how to do your long runs properly and, and, you know, really building tempo runs in. And, you know, so I coached her up and she became a 253 marathoner. And it was funny because, you know, we were always playing sports and Ronnie was always playing sports our son, but he didn't want to run and she wanted him to run. I want to run. He's just like, man, I don't want to run. I'll play baseball. I'll do soccer, but I'm not really into running. And, you know, right before he went to high school, um, he went to high school in New York City. So he had to commute like a commuter, like the grownups do around the metropolitan area, like Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, Long Island. People come in via a train or a ferry or a bus. And he was literally going to high school, you know, at like 14 years old like that. And they told us as parents the kids need to be in an activity that no one is going to, they're not going to know anyone. They're used to knowing everybody in their, you know, their primary school age and they don't know anyone. They need an activity, you know, whether it's a debate team, a club, a sport. And he said, you know, dad, will you work with me so I could try for cross country? And I was like, Oh yeah, let's go, baby. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah. So that was just the best ever. Um, you know, the baseball, I was a division one college baseball player, but you know, that was, the, the dynamic I'm thinking of is what you're talking about on the field is where I started with because, you know, he was, I think it always made him a little uncomfortable that I was, you know, I was in charge. I was the coach. Like, you know, that he, if any kids thought he was getting favorable treatment or got to pitch the important game or where he batted in the order. And I could understand that. I never, my dad never coached me. My dad isn't with me, but I can understand if my dad was the coach or my mom was the coach that I might feel like, oh, everybody's thinking, you know, I'm getting special treatment. And Lindsay, Lindsay's going to get taken care of, but then you're out there in the field, like telling them where to go and stuff. So that's like a whole other, that's a whole other <laughs> element. You're right. Like, oh man, we got to listen to the dad and her. It's like, we're getting tag teamed over here, man. Oh, man. Yeah. That's probably so annoying. <laughs> no, I love it. I think it's great, man. It's great. So you, um, you not only had a chance, obviously, to connect with these other athletes because you're coming from a homeschooling environment. So it had to be just great for you socially, you know, to connect with these other kids and travel and play in these teams. But also you have the dynamic of your dad coaching you. So what was that like? I mean, did you guys get on well, you know, with him coaching you? Were you comfortable with it? Yeah, for the most part. Um, I mean, we definitely butted heads at points like because he was very loud and vocal and then I'm very strong and loud and vocal which he's not in life just when he coaches he's actually a very quiet shy person um but as a coach like my mom would always yell at him after games and be like Andy like all you did was yell that and so I remember one game very distinctively that I like told him to shut up from the field and oh <laughs> So much trouble after that game. Uh-oh. <laughs> so much trouble. 
But in general, generally speaking, I I actually really liked it because my dad, as I said, was a very quiet, reserved person. He was a very hard worker. So he was gone working all the time, it seemed like, or bringing work home when he was home and still working. And so it was like the one thing that made me feel like I could connect with my dad and kind of forced us to have conversations because he would have to drive me to and from practice or games and like do special little things like um like take me to 7-Eleven on the way home and get me a Slurpee and Reese's Pieces because my mom wouldn't let us like eat junk food. So it would be like, you know, our secret little thing if I had a good game where he could take me and get me a special treat. Um, So it was a really great way for us to bond um, and for me to feel like I was getting like his attention and his approval because I knew that he cared so much about soccer. And so I knew that I felt like as long as I was doing good in soccer and doing well in the games and performing, then like, you know, I had my dad's attention. So, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. And you, and you got the bonus, man. You got the Slurpee and the Skittles and the candy. And I'm like the biggest junk food addict on the planet. No one oh, no. eats more garbage than I do. I mean, I, during the pandemic, <laughs> I existed on milk duds, gluten-free pizza. Oh, no. And just, you know, sour gummies and God knows what else. I mean, look, man, we all we all had to figure out some way to get through this crazy length of time that no one knew. I mean, I think when it all started, people were probably thinking this was going to be like a month or maybe two months at the most. I don't think there's a single person on earth, not Dr. Anthony Fauci, not anybody. I don't think anybody knew how long and how massively this would impact our ways of life and what we can do and can't do. And, you know, I just, uh, that was, the that was my crutch, man. We all have <laughs> something and, you know, like I go out and run all these miles and I come back and, you know, when I'm watching Netflix, I'm like, okay, it's time for a junk food binge, you know, let's eat a box of milk duds, you know, but, um, it's so funny though, when races really exist and when I'm really training for something and, uh, you know, I don't know how you are with it. Um, it's not that I don't eat any junk food, but I certainly don't do it very often. I just try to eat way more healthy. And as my training builds and a cycle's coming together, I'm just way more focused on the bigger goal. And, you know, it's not to say that I still won't have some of those things, but certainly not every single night. And I'm eating, I'm way more focused on eating a real meal with good quality content yes, you know, than that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> craziness, man. So what's it been, what was the pandemic like for, for you and, and the family life? How was it for you guys? Um, well, my husband had just, um, he's in the military. He had just commissioned to be an officer. He was prior enlisted and commissioned. Um, so that happened. He actually almost got stuck at where he was graduating because of the pandemic, like literally hit right at his graduation, like the weekend we drove there to go watch his graduation. So a lot of the events like were canceled. It was the first time like we were hearing it on news and it was crazy, but he almost got stuck there um, because of it. Um, But so for like the first few months, he luckily was stuck at home because like he was waiting to start his training at the next place that we were at. And 
Um, it would have just been odds and end jobs to kill time. Essentially, you would have been doing. And so they were like, you're not essential right now. You know, basically, like, just stay at home. So he was just getting paid to sit at home for a couple months, which was actually great because then the kids were stuck at home from school. Well, my son was in school at the time, not my daughter. And so then I had my husband there to help, like, with the virtual learning and all the crazy platforms and all that mess. Um, and then I was able to sneak out a lot and run a lot. Like my, my training just like went insanely up over all those months. Cause like everyone was just stuck at home and I didn't really have anything else to do. And I got connected with, um, some endurance athletes in the area. And it was like, that was, again, like my one outlet. And so went a little crazy and, but it helped me like mentally and it gave me something like for me and something for me to focus on. And even though there weren't any like immediate races, I still had, you know, hope that especially trail races were really like going to start to happen pretty quick. I was hearing from the race directors, like some pretty positive things in Texas, we're in Texas at the time. And I have no problem like thinking long-term goals in my life. So I was like, well, this is great. I feel like all the endurance world is going to swing one of two ways. They're either going to like be like, uh, no races. Oh no. Like floundering and be like, I'm not going to do anything. And I'm just going to sit around. Or the other side just swung to the other side, kind of like me. And it was like, I'm just going to, this is like my outlet. I'm just going to train a lot. And so I was like, this is going to be a huge advantage for me whenever this ends, because I trained like crazy. And then I'm going to be ready to like drop in a race whenever and just go for it. So I was just trying to think of it as like, this is a competitive edge. <laughs> probably half the world is sitting around, you know, putting on weight, like everyone was joking about. And I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to get more fit and I'm going to train harder. <laughs> so <laughs> Took, took advantage of what was presented to you for sure. Um, yeah, I think you see it was all over the map with runners, um, ultra runners, triathletes. I mean, I've got friends in all sides of it. And I think it just depended on the individual person, were they coming up on some really, really milestone race, something they'd really trained hard for, dreamed of doing? Was it their first Ironman? Was it their first Boston? Was it um, their first 100-miler? Whatever, you know, sort of big milestone thing um, that might have been coming up for them, you know, everybody takes that kind of disappointment differently. And, you know, we're not, I don't, you know, I'm 60 years old. I mean, I've seen a lot of things happen in 60. There's people that are much older than me that have seen that much more. But, you know, when you're in your 20s or 30s, you know, my son is 23, you know, your life, your life experiences are shallower. They're not as deep. Um, and, but all of a sudden, you know, I'm talking to my son and asking him for advice on how he's dealing with it with his girlfriend at 23 years old living up in Vermont because they're so isolated. And, you know, no one has any more experience navigating a pandemic than anyone else does unless you were born, you know, in like 1800 or something or some other period of time when people were wiped out. No one had any experience with this. And it just affected so many people differently. Um, and everybody 
you know, from the highest people who came out of it better or resolved issues in their own lives and, and figured things out about themselves to people who just plummeted and just literally disappeared. Like, you know, they, they weren't reachable anymore. Um, they weren't talking to people anymore. They shut themselves off. So it's just, um, and I, and I think it's still to some degree going on. It's, it's certainly gotten a lot better, you know, maybe over the past, say three to four months or certainly a renewed feeling of optimism. Um, and I hope that it, we continue to build and, and move forward because as you said, in the trail community, certainly trail racing for the most part, sure. The big events like Western States and UTMB and all those, they went away like everything else, but there were many, many, many smaller to mid-sized races that went forward, took place. I always give a big shout out to the JFK 50 because that's my fave. Love those guys at JFK 50. Had a bunch of guests on who ran JFK 50. I ran JFK 50. It's a great race. So we got to get you to run there because it's it's not even far from you, man. Georgia, right up the road. You know, they're, st- they're not sold out yet. I mean, you got to jump in when there. When is it? Uh, it's September. It's the first week of September is the New York city marathon. It's later September. I want to say like maybe like the third week of September, you're going, Ooh, as no, you got a prior commitment. What do you, what do you, (laughs) what do you have? What are you locked in for? I have Georgia jewel is, um, September and I have a 50 then that I'm using as training for my first hundred in November. So I don't think two fifties that close together (laughs) would be ideal, but I could definitely put on the calendar for next year because I'm always looking ahead. Yeah. And we'll be here for a couple years. So Yeah. Did I say September? It's November. I, I messed that oh, up. Oh, November? Yeah. It's, still. still. <laughs> it's even no, it's still. It's it's that's your ultimate race is in November. So it's not gonna work anyway. It's cause I know New York City is the first Sunday in November. This is like the third week of November. Um, but you know, maybe next year. Maybe it'll work out yeah, next, next year. year. I've heard yeah. and I've also heard good things about the Georgia Jewel. I haven't run it, um, you know, because I'm still relatively new in the ultra world. I've only done a few. Um, and you know, just getting more experience and looking forward to taking on more and, and trying longer distances. And I just can't believe some of the events that are coming together, man. That right? two hundred fifty like mile race is insanity, man. I mean, talk of the ultra world right now. Yeah, it's I like know. complete craziness. It was so awesome. Yeah, it was so yeah. Awesome. And then our fellow Coros Explorer teammate Howie's out there photographing it all, yep. and just uh, what an amazing job. I mean, it, not only is he an amazing photographer but he's like a great on-scene reporter he he puts great posts together and just shoots these amazing uh shots of people that just kind of capture all the emotion and then just you know he did um whatchamacallit the race uh the crazy one barclays and no one ever finishes he did that one also and i just love i love following the races that way and i look forward to being in some of those races someday Um, you know, some of those, you know, like Western States is like kind of everybody's dream, but you know, there's also a limit to what's real and whether it's, it's something you might actually be able to qualify for one day. And I've been blessed, you know, in the marathoning world, I've run every major marathon there is. I qualify for everything by, you know, huge amounts and that's great. Um, what's, what's your big race? Like what's, I mean, I'm sure there's maybe even more than one, but what's, what are a couple of races that are out there that you're like dreaming of running one day? Western States, hands down. Yeah. I can't help it. It was, it was the first, oh gosh, I wasn't even married yet. And I'll be married 10 years this summer. I think I might've been dated, dating or engaged. It was right about the time the Billy Yang film came out, Life in a Day. 
with following all the main women, Sally McRae and, you know, Pixie Ninja and just all the girls I've loved and followed for so long. And that was one of the first films I saw. And that was right at the same time that I was working for a specialty running shoe store. And I was already around some phenomenal endurance athletes. And man, as soon as I saw that film, like I have been dreaming of Western States since that day. Like it, I was crying and I don't cry like, like ever. I mean, I was crying, chills, like I just couldn't believe it. And I've been following all those women um, very much ever since. And I've been waiting for my time and um, I just... I had to be patient and I had to wait till it fit in with our life and with our family and with where I was at in my endurance abilities and all that. And so this is my first year. I'm going for my first hundred and like I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for this day. And it's definitely a Western States qualifier. And I know sometimes it can take multiple, um, tries of qualifications, but at least they've made the recent changes, you know, where you can just keep rolling over your points. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm, I'm going to start putting my name in the hat finally. And, um, I mean, I really, I really, really, really want to be there one day. I do think it'll happen. It might take a little bit of time, but I really, really, really want to be there. That, that place has some personal um, significance to me with some things that I've gone through in my life and just logistically where it is, where it starts. Like I've gone through some and done some very bad things in Tahoe area. And then to kind of finish in Auburn, again, Sacramento, a place where a lot of stuff happened in my life. So like personally, that would be just, I think, an in an insane experience to go through to like go back redemptively to that area and do something like a hundred miles when I shouldn't even be alive right now. And then to go back and run a hundred miles, like where I should have died and then to finish it. And then a lot of my family and friends are still in that area and they've been cheering me on all this time and they believe in me and they want to come watch me and support me there one day. So, yeah. So when it happens, as you can see, I'll have a lot of, a lot of heart tied up in that race. And yeah, I really, really, really want to go there one day. So time to start putting my name in the hat and going for it. I love it. I love, I love how your energy just like shot up, like, I don't know, 80%, you know, when you're talking about that. And there's there's so much in there. I want to go back through each and every, like, thread in there. So, um, for one thing, definitely shouts to Bill Yang. Um, just huge, huge Bill Yang fan. Um, I don't get to listen to that many podcasts myself anymore because I'm so busy recording my own shows. And, you know, people, what people may not realize, even the, the Devote Run Chats listeners that, that listen to all of our shows, like, it's really an enormous amount of work. Like, it, as any good podcaster who cares about their show and their content, they'll listen to the show before it goes live, sometimes as much as five or six times, trying wow. to find 
that one magical audio clip. It's probably going to be in there, but it may be it may be somewhere later down the road when we get into the really deeper stuff. But because um, it's it's always a moment in thirty or forty seconds where the energy or the vibe just captures the sense of the show. And it doesn't have to be serious. It can be funny. It can be, you know, really serious. It can be anything. But if it's just something that just captures people's attention. So like I would go on crazy long runs and listen over and over and over again, or long bike rides. Um, although I don't like to have headphones in when I ride a bike, because I just want to hear every possible noise that there is. Um, and even if I have it on low, I feel like I might not hear a car coming up or even just sounds, you know, that you just need to be alert or aware of, you know, like a wind change where your bike might start to sway if you're going at higher speed. So, um, so definitely Billy, I mean, the man is just legendary. I mean, he's, Hey, he's a great, he's a great podcaster. He's an amazing photographer. He's a storyteller extraordinaire, but those, those Western, um, uh, YouTube, uh, shows, I watch them. I, I feel the same sort of emotion that you're talking about. I've done hard 50, 60 mile rides on my trainer. I'm pointing over my shoulder (laughs) where I just go into the serious like pain cave locker mode. Like I'm going to just go way harder than I would ever ride my bike on the roads because I don't feel safe pushing that hard with other people around me, cars, whatever. I just know that there's safety here. I'm not going to fall off my bike. I'm not going to get a blowout. Nothing crazy is going to happen to me. And I can just go and drip and sweat. And the emotion, and they're not all his, there's other great ones too on Western. I mean, the one where uh, Walmsley went the wrong way, like whatever that one's titled, like wrong turn at 91 or whatever. Like, I mean, it just, they're just, yeah, I mean, he's crushing and leading the race, ready to break a record. And he made a wrong turn at like mile 91 at Western and, you know, he didn't win. You know, he just didn't win. Oh gosh, and I don't he's, remember yeah, that. Yeah, well, oh, you, you'll need to watch that one. I'll send you a, I'll send you a link. But he's Can't come back. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, but, he's, oh, he's come back and, you know, smashed the course record, oh, then course. smashed it again. And, you know, just he's one of my favorite runners to follow. I love the way Walmsley just goes out there and does it. But, um, but Billy is a storyteller extraordinaire. And like his own Y100, I just think it really... It's always the question. Every podcaster out there worth their salt, we want to figure out why are people running? Why do I run? I know why I run. I want to know why you're running, but not just why are you running? Like what what's the story behind that? Like what what made you become the runner, the triathlete, somebody who's, you know, a competitive person doing crew, whatever your sport is. Like I want to get you know, behind all those layers and figure it out. So, um, yeah, that, what you said had so much interest. And then obviously, you know, you and I talked before coming on the air, you know, cause I'd seen a post that you'd put out there on Instagram about, you know, people that are struggling with, you know, potentially suicide, really bad depression, all of these things were happening before COVID came around, okay? People are in states of depression, taking drugs, medicating, drinking, all these things because they're just not in a comfortable place in their life long before COVID came around. Now you throw COVID into the equation and it's just, 
it's like lighting a match and then pouring lighter fluid and gasoline in a situation. And we're all cut off. I mean, and even though you're home with your children and your husband, right? And I'm home with a dog, so I'm not home alone, but still it's not human and she's amazing. And I don't know where I would be through this 16, 18 months without her to come back from my runs and have her greet me or, you know, be getting me out of bed to take her for a walk or whatever. So, um, I know we talked about, you know, you wanted to share um, that element of what you've been through. And I think it's wonderful because I've had people on here talking about postpartum, you know, alcohol, drug recovery, and, you know, it can change one person's life, anorexia, eating disorders. If it changes one person's life, that makes me so fulfilled as a human being because it isn't my story. It's the person who's willing to, to go to that place where they were and talk about it and then hopefully connect you know, after someone listens to our show, hopefully some people are going to reach out to you and say, you know, thanks for sharing this. And, you know, I hope I, if I send you a question, you'll help me out. Or if I really, I'm not sure of like what to do. So where do you want to start? Um, well, I'll start. So when I was growing up, when I was a little girl, I'll just start with saying like, I knew that, that something was wrong, like that there were these signs that just didn't match up or make sense. Um, and so like, for instance, um, like I would go to sleep over at a friend's house and I would end up having to call my parents to come pick me up because I would be having like a full blown panic attack, feeling like I'm going to throw up and just die. Um, because I would be like irrationally afraid that their dad was going to like do something to me like sexually and I didn't have any reason to think that like with their dad specifically just that's how I felt in those moments and there were just all these other little signs and things along the way and um I think a, a lot of people maybe um, struggle or have felt this way, like girls out there being like, you know, something wasn't right. There's, there's little signs and things that happen, but yet you don't have like a clear memory, um, of when you were a little girl and something specifically happening. And so they struggle with it or they push it down, which is what I did for a long time. I just pushed it down, pretended like everything was fine. And then as it kind of, as I got older into my teenage years, it just kept coming up more and more and more this like feeling that something was wrong, um, that something wasn't right. I started to have like the thought that just something was wrong with me, even like that just something was wrong. Like I, um, like mentally and like I must, something must be off. And so I struggled like with that feeling and then not having those clear memories. And then it kind of switched to like feeling angry um, that I felt like I knew what had happened, but I felt like people wouldn't tell me the truth or give me the answers when I confronted them or when I reached out to my parents and said, Hey, like something's not right. I need to talk to someone. And, and then they just, their response was, I don't even know what the response was, but I know that they didn't get me help and that it was just like kind of my family's um, way to process things was just to 
push it under the rug and pretend like everything was fine and not really talk about anything real in our family. Um, and then I moved from Washington to California when I was 17. Um, and I had gone to Christian private school my first two years of high school and school was still very advanced and challenging there. And it was a Christian, you know, bubble world. And when we moved to California and it was just me and my dad at first, because my mom was still trying to sell the house back with my siblings. And they had me move ahead with my dad because I was just about to start my junior year of high school. So we actually flew out to California the night before my first year of high school. And then I went to public school for the first time in my life as a junior in high school um, from like suburbia, you know, very sheltered, middle-class Washington atmosphere to Central Valley, California, where it was Tulare County. We had the highest teen pregnancy rate, like in the country, very mixed cultured, a lot of low income, um, incredibly different world than I had ever seen. And then especially being thrown into public school for the first time. And it was a pretty smallish town, Visalia, California. And most of the people had grown up together there most of their life. So I was the new girl and somewhat, you know, attractive. And so I got a lot of attention and the popular girls hated me and outright like bullied me. Like there, there was one particular girl that had been sent to juvie many times in her life. And she had been known to like close trunks on girls hair and drag them behind the car and just beat the living life out of them. And I told my dad, cause like if I would go to a party or anything with friends, this girl would get drunk or whatever she was on and would start to try to hunt me down to find me to like beat me up because her ex-boyfriend or whatever paid attention to me and liked me. And even though I wasn't dating him, she just hated me because she hated me. And so I told my parents, I was like, if I wind up dead, it's because of this girl and this is her name. And yeah, like it was terrifying. <laughs> and um, I was, I was kind of already starting to get in a little bit of trouble with my best friend, right? About the time we found out we were going to move. Um, me and her were absolute close, close, absolute best friends. And we started sneaking out once I found out we were going to move and we started getting drunk and we smoked weed for our first time and we were just rebelling in any way we could. We were really upset that I had to move and we'd come from like similar sheltered backgrounds. And then when I moved, it just accelerated things like I had already been starting to mess around and um, make mistakes. And then I get there and it was like a lot of the popular guys are all drug dealers and they, you know, paid attention to me. And so they would give me whatever drugs I wanted for free and uh, were my friends and paid attention to me. And I had some girl, a couple girlfriends too, but I kind of took them along with me for like the rebellious um, 
fried and somehow survived high school, barely made it out of there, skipped a lot of days. I wasn't challenged um, like academically for the first time in my life. And I found that I really need to be challenged in my life in some way. Like that's just my personality or I tend to start to get in trouble and go down a bad path. And so somehow survived high school, made it out of there and then went off to college and only continued <laughs> to get worse. Um, I, I originally, I went in on a scholarship to row for Sacramento State and had been an athlete all my life. And I absolutely loved crew and loved, uh, rowing. I'd been lucky enough to have been exposed to it in Washington before we moved and started to learn the sport. So I was lucky enough to be, I reached out to the school and I was brought on with some scholarship and I was brought straight on to the JV team and I loved the sport and I loved my team, Um, but it was a lot, you know, it was another huge transition where I'd already just gone through a hard transition and now I'm thrown into Sacramento living on my own for the first time and I had a job and going to school, obviously full time. And then in a sport where we often practice six days a week, 5am. And it's a half hour drive out to Lake Nodomas, you know, so I'm getting up insanely early, and then going to school day and working. And I had a boyfriend um, who was going to St. Mary's near uh, San Francisco area. So I was often driving back and forth to visit him. Um, And he got diagnosed with MS. And so he would have like an episode and get put in the hospital. And I would drive down there like late at night and then drive back and try to go to my crew practice straight in the morning, like off of no sleep and then go through my whole day. And the stress and anxiety from watching him get diagnosed with something so life changing and then him become depressed and start, you know, taking pills and handing me pills and trying to get me to drink heavily with him because he was upset and depressed. And it was just, it was way too much stress. (laughs) So by the end of my first year of college, I quickly was breaking. And that's when I started to have my very first, like I, I started to have insomnia. And like, I remember showing up to rowing practice in the morning and we had like an erg test. And I remember one day just like freezing, like on the erg, because I just, I had no, no strength, no, I had, I had nothing in me all of a sudden. And it was like the depression and the insomnia just started to like take over. And I just like cried and I couldn't even, I couldn't even like do the test that day. And it was the first time I started to have suicidal thoughts. And my boyfriend knew. And so he pushed me to go see like a a psychiatrist or whatever and reach out and get help. And um, they put me, they started putting me on, uh, I don't know, probably like, I think they gave me something really strong for the insomnia. And then they gave me something really strong for the depression. And they encouraged me to quit 
crew and rowing because they were like, logically, this is the only thing that you can cut out. You know, you can't stop going to college because then you're not going to be on the rowing team. You can't not work because then you're not going to be able to pay like for your rent in your apartment. And that was devastating to me because I had always been a part of sports and sports um, and teams were what made me like tick and thrive and being pushed in that way. And so I had to quit the rowing team and I ended up eventually breaking things off with that boyfriend for many reasons. Things just got worse with him and lots of stuff came out um, through the situation. It had nothing to do with, of course, his medical diagnosis or anything. It was just me seeing some very strong warning signs. And so broke off the relationship. And then comes along the next boyfriend who, aka next drug dealer in my life. Um, and again, drugs are handed to me free. I'm now on some psych meds. I'm still struggling in every way. And then it just, the partying and the drug use and what's introduced to me just kind of, you know, slowly builds and spirals. And my relationship with him was very codependent, you know, physically, sometimes abusive, definitely very mentally and emotionally abusive. And then you just mix in the more drugs you mix in, the more, the more you're exposed to bad situations and you're put in bad situations, then more bad things happen to me, you know, getting date raped and getting slip date rape and being raped. And, and it's just like, you start to go through more and more traumatic events and the suicide got worse. And, um, I was in and out of psych hospitals for a period of time. I got, uh, caught drinking and driving and I got a DUI. And so I had to go to jail and, um, and then that would, make me more depressed and, you know, have more symptoms because then I'm mixing, like you're mixing street drugs with like psych meds and then you're mixing in trauma and all these horrific things that are happening. And so then it's like, you start having panic attacks. And so then they put in more meds and they add in more and more. And I mean, at one point it was like, I, I had multiple diagnoses. They had said, I, insomnia, anxiety, bipolar eventually got added. I think they said like multiple personality disorder at some point in time. Like, and I didn't have necessarily any of those things. I just had traumatic life events that had happened and I had deep hurts and wounds that had never been addressed. And I was covering them in the only way that I knew how. And all of it combined together just was not, it's not good for you. Like it's not good for you to mix all those things together. So eventually I got to the point where, I mean, it wasn't just like before it was things like cutting or just kind of being self-destructive in any way I could like trying to take too many drugs that night and drink and just kind of hoping I would die, but not like outright trying or like I said, the cutting where it's like, you're kind of trying, but you're not really trying. And then 
Um, after that boyfriend that I'd been with in the bad codependent relationship, after that ended up getting broken off, um, things again spiraled and got worse for me. And so then at that point, I, I felt like I was too far gone. Like I had turned my back on everything that my parents had taught me, um, growing up. I, had done everything wrong that I never wished I would do. I had had horrible things done to me that no one should go through. I had made every mistake under the sun you could make. And at that point in my life, I was just like, there's no hope. There's literally no hope for me. There's no way I can come back from this. No, no good man is ever going to want to marry me. You know, there is zero hope for my future. My family could never take me back. I could never be a part of my family after what I've done and the mistakes I've made. And I just felt like there was absolutely no way out, like no way out. And so on this particular day, I was with a friend and I'd been like drinking and probably doing a little bit of drugs, like smoking weed or whatever. And we went back to his house and he had to go to work. So I was left alone in someone else's house. And I had a full bottle of narcotic anxiety medication. Um, So very, very strong for it to be narcotic level. And I took the entire bottle of the anxiety narcotic meds. And I called 911. not because I wanted anyone to rescue me, but because in my head, I wanted someone to know where my body would be. Because <laughs> I knew <laughs> that there was probably no way I was going to live past that moment. And so I was just telling the lady on 911 where, where I was. I didn't even know the address, but I knew that they could later track my phone or whatever. And She was, of course, trying to talk me out of it. And I told her, I was like, it's too late. I already took the whole bottle and I've made up my mind. And this is what I want to do. And I remember while I was talking to her, I remember the feeling of like, I don't even know how to describe it, but it was like the feeling of life leaving me. Like I felt like I, I took this like deep breath. And like, there was this release and I don't remember anything until eventually at some point they found me and had given me charcoal and I was throwing up in an ambulance and they took me to the hospital and somehow saved my life. Um, And then of course, taken back to a psych hospital for the suicide attempt. And while I was in the psych hospital, I was again molested by some other patients that were in there. And it was just like the, the ridiculous amount of things that could go wrong to one person. Like it just wouldn't stop. Like I was already at my end and things just wouldn't stop. And, um, and I know it sounds like ridiculous. I feel like it sounds ridiculous when I tell my story sometimes, like the amount of things, but like, that's really what happened. Like, I think 
I was just that stubborn and strong-willed that like I didn't need just one rock bottom. I needed like multiple rock bottoms back to back to back. So it was like this short window period of having horrific thing after horrific thing happened to me. And the breaking straw was I had was in a part of downtown Sacramento that I did not know, but apparently if I was later told that if you are a white girl walking on this street, like something's going to happen to you. Like I was in gang territory. I was in crypt territory. I had no idea. And a car um, stopped full of African-American people and they got out of the car and a girl came over and almost beat me to death. Um, and, and just jumped and assaulted me. And I, I, the only thing I remember again, bits and pieces from this, the only thing I really remember is like someone yelling from this house nearby at them and like they left. And then I remember later being in the hospital. My mom actually came there. They took me, I was in ICU for several days. The amount of facial trauma, I mean, my entire face was completely crushed in. I have still plastic little implant under my eye. I had metal plates. My entire face was like smashed in. And the amount of hit trauma I went through, like they said, I was incredibly lucky to still be alive. And I couldn't even recognize myself when I would look at my face in the mirror. I, I had, my face had changed like the swelling, the damage. It was just, it was so much that I, I didn't even recognize myself. And sometimes I think back to that and I'm like, gosh, I wish I almost, I wish I had a picture just so I could see like how bad it really was, but not that I need to do that, but that that's all I remember. I remember little bits and pieces and I was in ICU. And then it was like, that was it. My parents were like, Lindsay, like you, I couldn't work obviously anymore because I couldn't go back to work looking like that at that point. I needed to heal. I ended up having multiple surgeries after, um, to my sinuses and to my face because of the trauma that was done. And my parents were like, Lindsay, like you're done you're coming home and you're done. And I finally was like, okay, like I I give up. Like, I don't know what else to do. I'm not happy with my life, the way it's going. And I want to change. And I remember thinking like, if God, there must be a God, because I struggled during those years. I was mad at God. I was, I was mad at my parents. Um, And I was like, you know, if they believe in God and this is how they, things ended up. And I don't know, I just, I went through a lot of angry time and blaming God time. And but deep inside, I was like, there must be a God because if I'm still alive, (laughs) there has to be a God and he has to, he must have me here for a reason and for a purpose because no one should be alive after some of the things that I went through. And so I think that's when I was like, okay. And so I went home and with my parents and 
Um, I think they had kind of hoped that like things would get better just by bringing me home. But, and even though I wanted to change, I just, I still had a lot of fresh trauma that had just happened and a lot of hurts and I hadn't dealt with it yet. So I still had to cope any way I, I could. And so I was still secretively doing things or finding people to get me things or, I mean, they gave me strong, strong pain meds because of the trauma that just, just walking hurt because like when your face is very, very sensitive and just literally the motion, the weight of your foot going down caused excruciating pain. So like I had to take it, but I also abused it and worked the system because I knew how to do that. And so I was still finding like ways to string it along and cope. And I was still on, um, psych meds. And then my parents were like, Lindsay, we're going to have to kick you out on the street if you don't like actually go get help and go to some kind of rehab. And I, I fought them on it, of course. And, um, I finally agreed to going to like just a secular little one that we had in our town. And, um, it was not very helpful, honestly, (laughs) like if anything, (laughs) It kind of fed it at times because you're just around all these people who have all the same problems as you and you're just talking and reminiscing about all the bad things that you used to do. And uh, I was still on the psych meds because they allowed us to be. You're still intermixed with males. And so and we're still smoking cigarettes. I used to smoke cigarettes like you, you still have all these little like things that you're kind of holding on to. So, um, although I did it for a couple months, I convinced my parents like, Hey, it's a waste of time. Can I just come home? Like, you know, it'd been two months or whatever. Like I'm fine now. Can I just come home? So I came home, still struggled. And my parents were like, again, you're going to be out on the streets unless you go. And this time it needs to be teen challenge because you need something like longer, Um, and it was Christian based and my parents knew that. So I really, really fought him on it, but, um, eventually I got to the place where I guess I just wanted help bad enough and I wanted to change it. I agreed. And, um, fortunately for teen challenge, like they don't allow you to come in if you're on any kind of psych meds. So, or to smoke cigarettes. So Pretty much most of the rest of my crutches were being taken away from me at that point. And I had to legitimately detox from the psych meds before I before they would even let me like enter the program because you had to be completely off of them. And um, I had to get a signed doctor's note from like my psychiatrist saying like that it that was okay. And uh, luckily, fortunately, he agreed with the program enough to sign me off on it and allow me to come off of all the segments. Um, and that was probably just as hard or harder than any drug detox I had ever done. Like just going to a bookstore with my mom when I was in that period of time, I remember like having a panic attack, like everything was just so intense and overwhelming and my body was just going through crazy things. It was really, really hard like to come off of them. And I've always had a special place 
in my heart now after that experience where I think people should have a safe place to come off of psych meds if they want to. And they're on, you know, some really strong stuff because it is just as hard or harder than any drug detox, in my opinion. Um, And so quit smoking cigarettes and then quit the psych meds and start a teen challenge. Um, I was there for about six months. Um, and that's when God really started to work on my heart and enter my life again, because it was a very strong Christian program. And that was the first time that like things really started to change in my heart. And, um, yeah, but I still, I still had one last crutch that I haven't mentioned and that's eating disorders. They were there off and on from like high school through college. And most of my problems, I wouldn't say that they were ever, of course they were a problem. I'm not belittling them, but I think that they came out of a place of just complete self-destruction. Like I hated myself. I hated my life so much. I was in so much pain. I was so mad at people around me that I was trying to self-sabotage myself in any way possible. And so I don't even remember ever thinking like, oh, you're fat. You need to not eat or you need to make yourself throw up. It was just like another coping mechanism for me. I know that it's not that way for everyone, but for me, that's, that's really more what it was. So at Teen Challenge, that was like one of the last things I could really hide. Um, Although they did know that it was a problem, I would still find ways to sneak around or binge eat and make myself throw up. And so I kind of held on to that little crutch um, most of the way through there. But God did start to get a hold of my heart and really transform me. And I ended up having to leave. It's normally like a year long program or it can be. but I ended up leaving because I needed my, I believe my third sinus surgery because I was having constant reoccurring sinus infections still from the trauma. And they told me I couldn't have that surgery while I was in the program that I would have to leave. Um, and it wasn't me trying to quit. Like I legitimately, like they, I was having so many severe sinus infections, even while in the program that my mom was like, you have to have this surgery. So you're going to come home. And so I came home and had the surgery. And then at that time, um, we had a family friend living at my parents' house and she had been staffed on like this Christian discipleship school program. And so when she saw me come home, um, she was like, you need to go to this school. And I ended up joining their school year, mid-year that year, and that's when things like really, really started to change for me because that was the first time that I had to directly look at the pain that had happened to me. I had to face the wrong that had been done and like really look at it. And really walk through healing and really walk through forgiving people and not just forgiving people, but also forgiving myself, because that's that's another piece that's really hard for people. And it was incredibly painful 
to walk. I was in that school for like a year and a half, almost two years. And we were ministered to by um, people that like travel the world and speak on certain topics and get a pray over people. And it was incredibly hard, incredibly hard to like, to look at it all and to feel like to actually admit that those things like had, had been, had that had happened to me and like the pain that came up and then walking through the healing process of it. Um, and then that's when too, I was like, you know, enough is enough. And I don't want anything to do with this eating disorder anymore. I decided that I was going to fight against that. And I didn't want anything. I didn't want anything like holding my life back anymore. I didn't want anything damaging me anymore. I didn't want to harm myself. I I loved feeling alive. I wanted to be 100% free. And so I felt like in the school, we were very open and honest and not everyone was there with a story or a past like mine, Um, but we were all very open and honest and lived our lives in the light. And I told the staff that, you know, I was still hiding this eating disorder. And I told them that I felt like I needed to bring it into the light because I didn't know what else to do. And I wanted to get rid of this thing. And so I went before all the other students in the school. There were like 20 or so, almost 30 of us. And I stood before them all and I told them like about my eating disorder and that I was still doing it. And to me, like the eating disorder was so much more shameful to talk about than even like drug use or sexual abuse in my past. For whatever reason, there was just a lot of shame tied in that. And it was really hard to say, but as soon as I brought it into the light, then I started to be able to really break it. And not long after that, I mean, everything was a process with me (laughs) again, because I'm so stubborn and strong willed. It was, everything was a process, but I got rid of it. And I cannot even think of the last time that I've had any of those kinds of thoughts, whether it's feeling suicidal or depressed or wanting to harm myself or feeling like I needed to make myself throw up or punish myself with food or any of those things. Like it's, it's been a long time now and those things don't come attack me. Like I literally believe that there's demons. I saw them when I was suicidal. I saw them when I had my eating disorder and like they, they, they'll talk to you and they will taunt you and they will tell you and they were, they will comfort you and tell you like, no, it's okay. You want to do this. Or they will hold, like put a hold on you and make you do certain things that are self-destructive. And like, I fought against all those, all those demons and like those things are not there anymore. And I guess the biggest thing that I want people to know and that I try and tell people from my story is like, no matter what you're in now or no matter what you have gone through in your past, like in that moment, when you're in that, like 
suicidal moment where you feel like there is no way out. There is nothing that can get better. Like you are too far gone. Things can and will get better. And I can say that wholeheartedly because I'm living here in that. (laughs) I have a wonderful husband who's a godly man and is not damaged and broken. (laughs) And I have two beautiful children that I did not think I would be able to have. And like, we have been so blessed and I feel alive and free and I love life and I love living life. And I'm so thankful that I'm still here. And so if someone is feeling this way, like, I know you don't see it now, but like, it will get better and things will change. And if I could show you the picture in your future of where you will be because of where my life is now, I promise you, like, it will get better and that you just need to hold on. You need to hold on a little bit longer and and fight through it and things will turn around like they will and I'm living proof of that and it's crazy and yeah (laughs) so I you know I've really messed up broken past and most people tell me when they see me and they know me like I would have never have guessed I would have never guessed looking at you that like any of these things have happened or that you've been in jail or that you've done drugs or you've been in a psych hospital or, you know, any of these things. And it's like, God has so far removed my past and healed me that I can talk about it freely and openly because it's like looking back at another person and it's like this other person and this life like that they went through and not to say that once those things are gone, not to say, you know, you won't, you won't still have like healing happens in layers. It's not just like one and done. And so like, I have, I have to have certain boundaries around my life that I know about me. Like I have to be careful about what shows I watch or even some music like that I used to cut to that can trigger memories or feelings. Um, A lot of shows that are on TV have like, you know, traumatic things in them. And sometimes if I just see a scene unknowingly, like I can be up for the next couple nights because it'll trigger a memory that the enemy will then just like taunt me with and taunt me with. And I'll start going down this spiral in my mind of like horrific things. And so I have to be careful um, and I have to set certain boundaries. Like, like I actually, I didn't drink for a long time, but I felt like it was okay now that like I've, I'm removed, far removed. Like I can have a glass of wine or a beer. I don't want to get drunk. Like, I don't, I hate the feeling now of feeling out of control. And that's like what I used to live for. But still there's boundaries. Like my husband knows my past and um, I don't put myself like in situations where it's like that crazy party, like let's just be stupid kind of place or 
I don't drink hard alcohol because I feel like that can just all of a sudden, you know, like hit you and like you can get drunk when you didn't mean to get drunk. So I have boundaries over myself. Um, but all in all, like, you know, I feel healed and free and sure things come up sometimes and trigger memories, um, or trigger pain in me through things in the media and the news, whatever. Um, but I know how to like process it healthy now. So yeah. <laughs> that, that was amazing. Um, so much trauma and, and so much pain and, um, just so many horrible experiences to go through, to be a part of, to live through, um, to get to the point where you are today. It's, it almost doesn't seem real or believable just even listening to you tell it, um, because it started off innocently enough, you know, when you moved in high school and extends all the way through college and after, and, um, it's just, it's remarkable, like how many things, you know, kind of continue to happen to you, you know, as you were getting further and further, you know, down the rabbit hole and, you know, it was spiraling, you know, spiraling and, and getting worse and worse for you um, before, you know, a, a couple of attempts to really, you know, get it resort, you know, resolved, you know, moving back home, all these other things, but still, still wasn't getting to you know, the core, you know, the situation of really facing all of these things, things that were done to you, but also things that you did. Because I think that's the biggest thing. Um, people that have had addiction issues or whatever, you know, I think one of the reasons why those programs work, the 12-step program, all these programs is you have to acknowledge what your end of the responsibility is. You have to take ownership of it. You have to apologize to people you've hurt. Um, and you have to face it. Sure, you had horrible, horrible things done to you, and I, I feel terrible for you just listening to you um, share that. But I thank you for sharing it because there could be some other person that is in a very close spot. Sure, maybe their circumstances are different. Maybe their addictions are different, and maybe their trauma is different. You know, they didn't get beat up on a street in Sacramento, but they still suffered the similar kinds of pain and trauma that you did, or maybe had people taking advantage of them, or, you know, it can be a woman to a guy, it can be a guy to a woman, it could be women to women, guys, it, it doesn't matter. Sex has nothing to do with it. Age has nothing to do with it. Trauma and pain and hurt um, and the ways that we will go as humans to try to either mask it or dull it or make our life at these moments just so that we can keep going or, or not. We're, we're trying to check out. In your case, you're calling a 911 operator more or less just to tell them where you are because you're figuring at least they'll find you. Um, but not thinking like, hey, come and save me. You know, I want to be saved at all. So um, just unbelievable, um, remarkable. Um, all of those things, all of those individual things that happen to you, um, and I think the most powerful thing that you talked to, out of all of those things, like when you recognize that you had to come clean on the eating disorder, I mean, that was truly the last thing that you were holding on to, and they didn't know about it. Um, 
so you didn't have to tell them. Um, so I think that was probably the point when you finally like let go of all of it um, because it is control. In some regard, you're holding on to that addiction, you're cheating, you're doing something you're not supposed to, you're putting something in your body you're not supposed to because it's making you feel better or less hollow, whatever. Whatever the reason that you're actually doing it is, you were still doing it and no one knew about it. So you took that last step of like responsibility and ownership and you were more or less freed at that point. That was the last thing that was kind of holding holding you back from getting, you know, to becoming this this newer person that wasn't being held back and pulled back from all this pain and trauma. And, you know, it had to feel, it had to feel amazing to just, you know, sure, whether 20 people may not sound like a lot. Well, 20 people's a lot, it's a lot of people. You're not talking to two people, you know, you're it's 20 people's a lot of people. And, you know, that at this point that you feel like they know you and you know them, but now, you know, you got to come out of the closet about like this one more thing. Um, so do you feel like that was a big, a big moment at the end of this to really just propel you forward? Definitely. It was me like making the choice. And I mean, I really had to fight in that school. I had to fight for my freedom. Like I, I, I had, I mean, yes, like God walks you through it, but I had to fight for it. Like I, I had to be honest and I had to walk through the healing and I had to look at it. And so I think it was like the fight just rose in me from that point forward. And it was just like me being a hundred percent throwing off the chains and saying like, I'm done, I'm done with destroying myself. I'm done with destroying my life. And like, I want, I want to be alive and I want to feel alive and I don't want anything else holding me back. And I don't want to give the enemy any room for any way that he can possibly bring me down. And I, I still do that. Like, like, I'll try a paleo diet or something for like a month. And, and then quickly I'll be like, you know what? No, not to say that paleo is wrong, but I'll be like, that's just another way where he can start messing with my thinking and I could let something back in. And although I've been free from all these things for a long time, like I so want to be alive and live my life and be free the rest of my life that I am very like aware of like, no, like, I'm not going to let this back in. I'm not even going to give it like a spot in my life where it can start to mess with me in some way mentally. And so, yeah, I just think the, the, the fight, the fighter within me started to rise. I started to rise and stand for myself and stand for my freedom and want it. Well, good for you. Um, you know, we all have, um, you know, a journey in life. Uh, and sometimes it isn't one journey. Sometimes it's many different things um, cobbled together. And, you know, all of that trauma, you know, some people would want to bury it or hide it or put it away somewhere. And I just have such respect for people who are willing to come out and talk about the things that they've been through with under the purpose of hopefully helping another person who's in that spot, that's struggling in that spot. Because, they don't have to be the same. They don't have to have gone through the same things. Pain is pain. Trauma is trauma. Suffering is suffering. Whether it's a bike crash and having your face smashed in or somebody punching you and having your face smashed in, those broken bones and titanium I have right underneath my suborbital bone, oh, no. I know all about that. So um, the pain is the pain and the physical parts of it. But 
the trauma of being abused, you know, sexually or other things, you know, whether it's by some random person, you know, that attacks you when you're running on a trail or it's somebody you're dating or somebody puts something into your drink, it still has the same effect. It still causes the pain and the trauma. So you, you know, taking on all these things and having to face them, you know, was the key. And hopefully, you know, people hearing you talk about all of that, you know, on this episode is going to help some people. So that, that I think is wonderful that you were willing to go there and, you know, really dive in uh, the way that you did, covering it from end to end. So I appreciate you, you sharing that for sure. 100%. Yeah, it's definitely worth it. It's worth it. If it'll, I mean, I, like I said, I feel like he kept me here for a reason. And I feel like part of the reason why I'm here is like to help others and to, to share my story with them. Um, cause I mean, I've seen suicide around me. I've, I've seen, I've seen it happen in, 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 within friendships and people close or, you know, just like a teenager down the street and seeing the train being stopped and knowing like it's, it's around. And my husband's in the military. I've, I've talked to a military spouse who came over to my house, who was going through a divorce and who was suicidal in that moment. Like, I've, and then through the running, like running is this beautiful outlet where like you open up your soul when you run, you know, <laughs> especially the longer you get into a run, like by the end of an ultra, I'm, I'm telling people like a lot, <laughs> a lot of times <laughs> about myself and like you make deep connections with people and you have a chance to like, to minister to them and to share life with them. and. Yeah. So like, I just, even though it sucks remembering and and the memories come up, especially before any time I know I'm about to share my story and it's not fun to look at again, but it's worth it if it will help someone. And it's definitely around. Like I wish, I wish so bad suicide was not around. I wish it was not a thing, but it is everywhere around us and we don't always hear about it. Um, but it's there and it sucks. Like I, I really hate it. It's, it's there. And it's just one of those things that people are really are afraid to talk about or don't want to talk about. And particularly if somebody in their family has taken their own life, it's just one of those things. Like sometimes they don't even want anyone to know that it was a suicide. Um, so I think there's, there's so much trauma attached to even just speaking about it and being honest to your own family, to friends of whoever that person is who's no longer with us. And, you know, these subjects become taboo and they become more off limits and it only exacerbates the situation and makes it worse. Um, Because if you hadn't talked to that military spouse, you know, maybe he or she isn't with us right now. I mean, maybe they are, but maybe, maybe they aren't. You just, you just don't know. Um, And in your case, you know, you talk so much about being headstrong and all that. It may not have mattered, you know, other than your mom or dad of somebody else that said, hey, man, Lindsay, you got to you got to pull it together, man, because you're not going to be with us if they saw you doing this destructive behavior. In your case, it may not have mattered because there are certain personality types and I'm incredibly headstrong myself. So I, you know, I need to see it. Okay, I don't need somebody else to tell me it. I need to see it. Okay, yeah, I, I understand. Wow. Okay, am I actually screwing this up? Am I 
doing this myself. Like I can't be like, oh yeah, you can't keep doing that. Or, you know, this isn't, you know, going to be good for you in the end. You, you know, sometimes you just have to, you know, come to that self-realization and you did. And, you know, ultra, I can't think of a better place for you to be um, in terms of, for one thing, being out in the trails, being out in nature is something that every single person needs. You don't have to have ever been depressed. You don't ever have to have overcome addictions or alcoholism or anything, man. You can be living a perfect, wonderful life and it will only be accentuated and move up in, in, in every possible way if you could find a way to spend an hour or two. And it doesn't even need to be on trails, just outdoors, being outdoors, outside, opt outside. One of my favorite hashtags, get outside, be outside, walk your dog, get on a bicycle, do something, but just be out there. And in our case, you know, we have a love of trail running and ultra running. These longer races are just different. I mean, I've run 57 marathons. I've run nine Bostons. I've run my 10th New York this year. You know, I've been blessed to run in some amazing, you know, super competitive races. I qualified for the world age group championships at the London marathon this year. These are, these are, these are fun and really wonderful things. But what I love about ultra is I'm new again. I'm new again at 60 years old. I'm new, you know, I'm new to how much nutrition do I need? I'm new to these amazing people at these aid stations who just like, you can light up their day because you're not like me and you'll smile and you'll crack <laughs> jokes and you'll be an idiot. And they're just like, who is this madman bleeding all over the place and just like making fun of himself? <laughs> like, you know, the JFK people, I'll never forget them. And I don't think they'll ever forget me because you know what? I don't care if my time is uh, 12 minutes slower in a 50 mile run because I stopped at a minute and a half longer in those spots and said, no, 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 you're not going to tape me up and bandage me up because I want my war wounds. I want my blood <laughs> all over my sneaker and my ankle and my knee and everywhere else because it was part of my day. It was part of my experience and it makes you feel alive. So I think in your case, you know, you have your story, you're sharing it and that's, that's powerful. But by being in a sport like ultra, you know, you're going to get a chance to share it with more people um, because it's just, it's a perfect place. Yeah. I love, I love this sport and I love trails and it's, it's like, I need, I literally need it. And it's like, it's the only way I know how to process things. Like I'm, I'm a mover. I'm, I'm a doer. And it's, it's like, it's how I function and stay like healthy and sane. And just nothing makes me feel more alive and free when I go out there and push myself or it's like, it's, it's like this beautiful feeling too of just like smacking the enemy in the face and being like, look, like I am living my life and like fully living my life in like every way I know how. And I'm like fully, just fully taking it all in and everything. And it's just so freeing and so beautiful. And I just love it. I absolutely love it. <laughs> it's perfect. Um, it's perfect 
in its imperfections. You know, the gainers we take out there, man, when we trip over a tree root and we're sprawled out, man. <laughs> and, you know, you'd think it'd be like, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't know anybody. The more you fall, it's like, it takes me back to when I was an eight-year-old kid. I never thought about stopping something because I fell and I went over the handlebars of my bike and I needed stitches or, you know, whatever <laughs> the hell we do. We're putting cinder blocks together and trying to be evil Knievel and do jump ramps and see who can get the most air and, you know, jump down these ditches and the crazy, insane things that we did, you know, like literally trying to break ourselves or see if we could break ourselves and didn't. So, um, yeah, but people say to me, oh, man, Trey, you really think trail running is for you at 60? And I'm like, yeah, it's for me. Like, yeah. are you kidding me? Like, yes. are, are you kidding me, man? <laughs> and I, I was, I was, um, heartbroken because I ran the 60 miles for Tommy Rivers, you know, for Rivs on my 60th birthday. And I got a stress fracture. I actually ran, you know, through a stress fracture. I had a stress fracture on my knee and I ran 60 miles on a stress fracture. So it's just not, it's the slowest healing stress fracture of anything. I mean, you could have a foot, there's so many bones you can have, but the knee is absorbing like everything. And it's, it's already been over three months. I probably have a few more weeks, but um, I was training for my first hundred and I know you're training for your first hundred. So I just know, um, for my few friends who just got through and did the one that I was planning to do, um, some failed, some succeeded. Um, just like you talked about trying to qualify for Western, you know, it can be years of trying to pull that together and it could be one, one time and you're in, you just, you really don't know. But then even to get on that starting line, no one ever knows if they're going to finish a hundred mile race. Even if they are doing two fifties now and all these other ones, they're multi days. Like it's not a hundred and one day. And you know, the weather, you know, in Western, my God, it can be, there could be snow, three, four feet of snow where they're starting out and it could be 95 degrees in the Canyon. So you have all of these elements like being thrown at you and you got to fuel, you got to keep your head together. You got to keep your feet and your, like all your socks, your feet, salts, potassium. There's, there's so much stuff, not to mention the hard part of just actually like the will to keep going, like no matter what happens to you out there. So I think it's super cool that from what you've been through and all of that, and now sharing your story, you know, that you've really like navigated to ultra. I think it's like the perfect place for you. <laughs> I have to agree. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's very rewarding. Yeah. And also, um, it's wonderful that, you know, you met your husband, you have two beautiful kids, like, that's, that's a blessing. Um, and that's beautiful. Because um, it gives you all the reasons in the world to just be focused on keeping your life together, keeping everything in order. And, you know, I think the more you speak about it, whether it's an Instagram via a post or if you talk to some other military families, I think that that's, that's a benefit because it keeps it front and center in your mind of like, this is, this happened to me. This isn't something that happened to somebody else. It might feel like it was somebody else at this point, but it was you. And, you know, like it's important, you know, as we work through things in our past, you know, it's just such an important uh, element and, you know, it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, I know your faith is strong and, you know, like when you have faith and you believe in God and it's important to you, you know, that's something you're giving back. That's community. That's, that's the very definition of community. And if you help one person, if you help five people, if you help 50 people, it doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter. It can be one person. It doesn't have to be 50. Um, you don't have to write a book and be famous. It's not about that. Um, if you want to, great. I'm sure you have a great story to tell for sure listening to you tell it. Um, but at this point, anything you're doing for other people, is it's wonderful. So kudos to you for that. Thanks. <laughs> So what other than Western states, which is like obviously your big, 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 big goal, um, what else with running, anything else big um, that we didn't talk about today, anything else like really uh, top of mind that's important to you that you're focused on for not only 2021, but just life in general that we didn't get to uh, cover off or share that you want to hit before we roll out? No, I mean, no, I, I don't think I found like my limit or my breaking point yet. So I'm excited to, like, I want to find that. Honestly, I think we all do a little bit. And I've done a lot of hard races and I've done half Ironmans and I've done some ultras now. And I just, I haven't found my breaking point yet. And I kind of want to see like what it is and like where, how, how I can respond in that. I'm curious to see. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm thankful that my body, like it's been a process between both family life and my kids' ages and raising little ones to where my husband's career was. It's been a process with all the things to feel like it was finally like lining up and everything was saying yes. And so I'm just excited to finally feel like my body and everything around me is giving me permission to like take it to the next level. And I'm just, I'm excited to see. I feel like this is going to be our a really big year. So I'm excited. I'm excited to see what's in store. Yeah, I can feel your excitement and your enthusiasm. And I know Western is your big, big, big one. Do you what's um, the Georgia Jewel? Um, do you have anything upcoming before then? I have a, a back burner sort of thing I put in the application for I'm waiting to hear back. So I don't want to like ruin it. But okay. I have a dream trip planned. Um, that I'm hoping I get this grant for and get a go do, and it would be back in Washington. Um, I like to go back to areas that have personal significance too, and kind of do some epic stuff. So I'm hoping that happens, but I don't, I haven't really told people about it yet. So I'm afraid it's like going to somehow make it not happen or <laughs> I'm going to ruin it. So I'm hoping it happens, but that would be this summer. And otherwise I'm just, I'm already in training mode for my two ultras and my hundred. I'm just, I did a couple races already this spring and like everything's just been clicking so well, finally knock on wood lately. Like I've had to learn a lot of hard lessons to, to get to this point, but things feel like they're finally clicking. And so, Yeah. So I'm just in full working mode towards my goals. I have no problem like thinking like September and November on a calendar sound far out to people, but in my head, like it's not that far. Like I'm in full work mode for those races because I already care so much about them. So yeah, so that's it for now. You're excited and uh, cheers to finding the breaking point. I think that's just a super cool thing that all elite um, endurance athletes share. And um, not just elite, just endurance athletes, period. Just uh, I think it's a wonderful um, thing to focus on because it's not about time. It isn't anything to do with that. Um, it's just like, can you continue to keep rising up? 
Um, I saw a Finnish word the other day. It's something that's really big in their culture, and I'm going to screw it up. I don't know if it's misu or sisu. It might be S-I-S-U. But it basically, it, there's apparently like so many different translations for it that don't always come over well to English. But it's just that ability to just continue to rise, continue to keep going, never you know, be stopped or broken. And they have just such a great history in endurance sports like triathlon and really, really long stuff, Ironman, ultra, stuff like that, that spirit, that kind of fighting spirit to uh, to push through. So you certainly have it um, to overcome all of these things um, that you've been through. And I can't thank you enough for, you know, really getting into the grit and the details of everything that you went through and sharing it it's um, an incredibly emotional journey um, that you've been through. It definitely moved me, you know, just sitting here listening to you um, tell your story. So I have no doubt that it will will have the same effect on others. And I hope it will reach, you know, as we talked about, it could be one, one person, five person, just somebody out there that's struggling or in a tough spot that might think, hey, I'm going to follow Lindsay. I'm going to reach out and see what she's up to. Um, and, and maybe um, you'll make some communication or connections with people like that, that are going through some struggles and you'll continue to give back to people in the community, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do as, as a a good quality human and a Christian. So keep it up, Lindsay, you're doing good stuff. And um, as we always say to sign off every show, we tell everybody to keep lacing them up, keep getting out the door and always remember to stay in the fight. Wow. I'm so grateful for Lindsay coming on and sharing her powerful story with the Run Chats audience in the hopes of helping others. I feel she's found her calling and her purpose in life and is really interested in trying to help others that could be in a dark place like she was for a very long period of time. And she knows firsthand that you can come out of something like that, something so dark, seemingly impossible to recover from and rebound from, and she has. And to be living life, to be happy, to be married and have two beautiful children, to find ultra running and the beauty of running and trails in nature. And most importantly, to be thinking that this is part of a larger plan, God's plan to share a story with others and to try to help others um, will certainly add a far deeper purpose to her life. So I'm very happy Uh, that she was willing to come on and share all of the details in the hopes of helping others. And I have no doubt that it could have a very positive impact on somebody who's struggling and hopefully a lot more than, than a few people, maybe many. So I appreciate everyone that's following our channel and following the Run Chats podcast closely. So many of you take the time to share our episodes and Instagram stories on Facebook write positive comments, write positive reviews on Apple Podcasts, and it's really helping us continue growth and momentum and get wonderful guests like Lindsay that are share their powerful stories. So I just want to say thank you to all who continue to do that in supporting our show. So let's keep building and let's keep moving forward. And as I always say at the end of every episode, keep lacing them up, my friends, keep getting out the door, and always remember to stay in the fight. Peace out, my friends. Peace out, my friends.